Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. You're listening to the best of Kevin and Query on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Jake, I'm almost waiting for the NBA to change the lottery format and show the back room part of it. Uh, for those unfamiliar, would. certainly. Um, for those unfamiliar with what we're talking about, um, behind the curtain last night, Kevin Pritchard, along with executives from you know all 14 teams that were represented, and they announced the four number combinations in order with the number one overall pick first. So the 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 first combination that was announced, the order was 14, five, and eight. That matched one of the Pacers combinations. So if you are literally sitting there, imagine being a Pacers fan and watching that, and you know the combinations, yeah. and you see 14, 5, and 8, and then they say, all right, and we'll be back from commercial with the fourth number. Now, that, that that's pretty good TV. You're right. Uh, the number ended up being 2, the fourth number. That was the Spurs. The Pacers had 6. Here's what's, fourth number. That from Scott Agnes, by the way. This is what's confusing to me. I read that not only did the Spurs get the number one pick, but that their you know combo or whatever was pulled like four times. Yeah, the next two that. were both them. So yeah. clearly, the number one is the first thing they pull, right? Correct. They go in opposite order of how we watch it on TV. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, to talk more lottery, Alex Golden setting the pace as the podcast uh, had one up late last night, recapping things. Alex, when you saw number seven for the Pacers, your reaction was ho hum. That's a that's a big you know bummer, or that's in a nice tier for Indiana. My first reaction was this sucks, but at least we didn't fall back. So obviously, everybody wanted to see the Pacers jump up, and of course, for the first time. After five years previously seeing number seven jump, jump into the top four, the Pacers stay at seven. I I was just glad we didn't fall past seven because I feel like this draft has a lot of potential wings that could be really good for the Pacers. So staying at seven was not the worst-case scenario. Obviously wasn't the best, but there could have been a lot of worse things falling back, not getting the, uh, the Houston pick as well. So I think what happened last night, while it wasn't the greatest outcome, it was right there in the middle, and I feel, you know, I feel okay about it. Kevin Pritchard mentioned last night after the draft, he feels like the Pacers are in the third tier, and, and, and he likes that tier. And again, you can read into some of that. Not might be a smokescreen, but I actually believe him. Tier one is Victor Webanyama. Tier two, presumably, is Brandon Miller, Scoot Henderson, and then tier three would be a lot of those wings that you mentioned. Is that kind of how you see it, or, or do you see a little bit more division within the top seven, top eight? Yeah, it's really tough. I think that... KP's probably right with the tiers being the way that they are. I mean, obviously, when Minyama's tier one and then Scoot and Brandon are in a, Brandon Miller are tier two. And then tier three, I think you can kind of make the case for teams four through seven, eight, making uh, a lot of different selections here with the players that are on the board. So most mock drafts have been pretty consistent with their top eight, top nine for the past couple of months. And I don't think it's going to change too much, but – you, you never know what's going to happen in the next 30 days, but it feels like it's a consensus top 10 for the most part, and I think the Pacers have to feel pretty good about it because they don't need another guard, and there's a couple of guards in that top 10 that will make sense for a lot of other teams, so maybe they can get their hands on a wing that does make sense. Yeah, I was saying, and you tell me if you agree with this, Alex, like Alex, I was saying that even though they have the seventh pick, 
realistically, they have the fourth because Webamyama is a guy they would take clearly if they had one. So that's off the board. But then basically, they are going to have, I think, their third choice of the player they need, which is a wing defender. You know, you can, do you see what I'm saying there? There are going to be probably two that go in front, and they're going to get choice number three of what they need. Because if they had the number two pick, that's the position they would be taking. Webamyama is the only non wing defender they would take at, at any spot where they were drafting. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that if they maybe have gotten three and Miller had been taken at two, I think they would have probably really considered Scoot Henderson just because of what people believe he can be. But I also think that would have given them a ton of trade ammunition to maybe move back a couple of picks, pick up extra stuff elsewhere. So I do I do agree, though. I think that the draft really probably starts at pick four, and the Pacers kind of have to just see how the cookie crumbles a little bit, kind of like they did last year with Mattern because – we know the whole time they had interest in Murray and Ivy. So with Matherin as well, so it was just kind of like, okay, which one do we get out of this group? And I think it worked out for all the teams involved, but I think it's going to be very similar this year because there's a lot of teams in this range that, you know, they can add wings as well. There's so many point guards like Orlando. I don't know how many more wings they can take, but I think that there's an opportunity there for them to get a point guard, which would say, okay, now maybe we get the third best wing left on the board, and I think that's just exciting. All right, seven. Uh, excuse me, seven twenty-six, twenty-nine, thirty-two, and fifty-five. Those are the five picks for the Pacers. Alex Golden from Setting the Pace. If I were to say, set the over/under at the Pacers drafting two and a half players with those five picks, you go over, you go under. I'd probably go right over. I think three is the max they probably take this year. I think they're going to try to do something with 26 and 29 and, and, and maybe make a trade to move up. I don't know what that's going to look like, but uh, I don't expect them to take pick 55. I think they'll sell that pick. I think Kevin Pritchard really likes pick 32 because of the optionality you have with it not being on a guaranteed contract. They can kind of make their own contract up similar to what they did with Nimhard last year. So, um, I think that they're going to hold on to that one and probably seven and then see if they can move 26 and 29 to move up maybe into the middle of the lottery. But I think, you know, at 32, it just depends on what player you get. Obviously, Andrew Nimhart was a ready-now player, but maybe you go after someone that's a little bit younger that has a little bit more upside and you realize we've got an extra two-way spot here based on the new CBA rules. So maybe they're thinking we can take a risk here at 32 and, and, and work it that way. But yeah, I think three is the perfect number. Okay, and let's get a little deeper into potentially trading and moving some of those picks. It sounded like you are a fan of moving up, you know, kind of packaging the late first-rounders move up. I, I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, it seems like Kevin Pritchard, though, talks a little bit more about, hey, don't forget about moving those picks for maybe a 2024 pick because obviously the Pacers yeah. don't have as much ammo necessarily moving forward. And then also you would throw out moving a pick or two, maybe even a top-ten pick for – a veteran and make a huge splash in that route. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on either of those ideas? Yeah, I, I definitely think KP is on to something with potentially moving those picks back into another draft because at this point, like you said, there's just too many guys and it depends on what they do and how aggressive they want to be. And if they're able to find a team that's hungry to get a pick this year and then they end up having a bad season next year, maybe you get a pick from them. So, that's not a bad idea, actually, and it, and it could make some sense to kind of like move your assets into a different year and then just have that ammunition. But I think when you look at moving up in this year's draft, for me, I'm looking at a certain range, and that's around like 17, 18, 19, that range, maybe 19, 20. 
I think Miami, Golden State, and the Lakers are there. And I feel like those are all teams that are going to have a lot of salary cap questions and how they're going to be able to build their team. So it could make a lot of sense for the Pacers to say, hey, we'll give you two picks you move back a little bit. And maybe the, maybe they find a player and they're involved in a trade. I don't, I don't have any specifics right now. But I just think that maybe you could find a way to package two for one because you're helping those teams save a little bit of money by also giving them options to kind of have guys under team control for, for lesser money as well. And there's a lot of talent in this draft, I think, that those veteran, te- those veteran teams could find veteran college players to help their team. But in terms of moving up or moving that pick out of seven, that's, a, that's an interesting question as well. I don't, I don't know exactly what veteran will be available for the Pacers. And I think if you look at the way contracts are made now, most of the guys you're going to get, they're only going to be guaranteed for three to four years. So if you're able to pull something off and get a guy for three to four years, it does make sense to maybe think about that. But the name that's been thrown around here a ton in Indiana is OG and OB, but he's got a player option next year. There's no way that I'm trading something like pick seven for someone like OG and OB because of the simple fact he could be gone after this season where you're going to have that player you pick at seven under team control for potentially the next nine years. So, that's where I think you really have to weigh your options, but I, I think the Pacers will be better off holding on to seven and not trying to force and, and rush this rebuild too quickly. Here is a a really good question probably for Kevin Pritchard, but I want your thought on it, Alex Golden. As we have gotten more into the NBA draft being drafting on potential as opposed to like known quantity because of the young age of of which players are now being drafted. And when you factor in that guys like Jokic was a second rounder, Giannis was a mid first rounder, the international flair of it or players developing once they are actually in a building for a year or two, has it devalued at all a top five pick versus 10 years ago? That's a great question. I, I'm not 100% sure how to answer this correctly, but I, I, don't, I don't think it does too much because I think overall the scouts and a lot of people that cover the NBA draft are very smart about realizing talent. Yes, there are your anomalies, but there's going to be those every year, and I feel like there's been those in every draft, and I think a lot of it just comes down to situations and how they work out. So I, I know that there's always misses, too, in the top of the draft, but – I, I don't think that it matters that much. I think that you just have to be really smart with your scouting and, and trust your scouts. You know, there's been teams that have been notorious for finding those diamond in the roughs, but there's also been teams that have really struggled because they're too they're they're too in shock with the like the intangibles and stuff like that. Looking at oh well, he's got a seven foot wingspan and he can jump this high. Well, can he play basketball? I mean, you gotta be able to determine skill set versus athleticism and, and measurements. I think that's the big thing here is not just getting so infatuated with what a player, you know, they could potentially be, but how do they actually play basketball? Because there's too many guys in this league, uh, I think Paul George and DeMar DeRozan were talking about on their podcast, that just aren't very good, but they're in the NBA and it's like, okay, I think we got to do a better job of evaluating, but I still think that the top-tier talent is there for a reason. And there's just going to be lucky guys that fall in the draft and end up making a name for themselves when that comes down later to it. Yeah, for every Giannis and Jokic, there's dozens of TJ Leafs and Gogas in that same sort of range. Um, Alex Golden with us here on the Payless Liquors Hotline. Again, setting the pace is the podcast. An absolute great listen for Pacers fans out there. 
Alex, I, I would assume you've gotten this popular question from a lot of people. Hey, trade your entire first round haul and get number two or get number three. Uh, probably easier said than done when you talk about what Brandon Miller and potentially Scoot Henderson and how they're kind of viewed by NBA teams. But Portland at three is interesting to me. Like, I mean, what do they do with Lillard and how do they view where they're at right now? Um, you know, do they totally want to blow it up and go like Thunder, like Utah? sort of get a ton of picks and, and, and more quantity over high-end quality. I, I don't see Charlotte being willing to move. They need a star in that market. I get LaMelo Ball, but he's been you know very injured. Uh, Portland is, is a, going to be one, in my opinion, to watch considering Lillard. What are your thoughts on, on maybe a team listening to some calls at two or three? Yeah, I think Charlotte's one of those teams that they should really just consider staying at two. And I'm not I'm not sure what Charlotte's gonna do, but I, I just feel like they're kind of in a little bit of a rebuild mode. They got that whole Miles Bridges situation. He's suspended for the first ten games of next year. He'll come back. They got PJ Washington, restricted free agency, and then Lamelo Ball. Um, for me personally, I would I would strongly consider drafting Scoot Henderson if I was the Hornets and looking to move Lamelo Ball. Maybe see if they can play together. But if they don't, maybe you move off Lamelo and, and see what you can get for him there. Uh, and there probably could be a team like Houston that's very star power hungry. Maybe they want Lamelo. Could you trade Lamelo for four? I think that's an interesting thing there. But Portland, when it comes to the Pacers and trading up with Portland, that's a really tough one because you know I look at this Pacers roster and I'm like, what really do we have a value that we're going to trade to get us moved up there? I mean, it's probably going to take six, seven plus Mather and plus your other first round picks to do it. And, and is that really worth it? I mean, I think that. Maybe it does make sense, but I'm not sure I'm ready to punt on Matter after one season and have how promising itself. So I, I don't think the Pacers have the ammunition player-wise to do it. They, they do have future picks and all that stuff, which is very important. But I don't know if Portland would do that and, and move back four spots when they're going to get somebody in that tier two at three. So for me, the Pacers right now, like I said earlier, I think it just kind of makes sense to – sit on their hands here for this draft. Don't get over-anxious and, and try to make some massive trade at the draft uh, on draft day. And just take the best player available at seven and continue to see how, how things shake out. Because we know in today's NBA, the next star could always be available. You just don't want to give away all your assets too early and get yourself stuck in a situation like Minnesota did with Rudy Gobert. I can't see them, Did he just Alex. say pun on Matherin? I almost... Almost well, hung up the phone and even the thought, Alex. Yeah, I can't see them. And Alex, I realize you're not suggesting this. I'm saying hypothetically speaking, it would not seem to be worthwhile to flip Matherin into other pieces because whatever pieces you get back, you are in. You are hoping that those pieces are able to develop because of and along with Matherin. You know what I mean? Like he is an important piece of whoever they bring in. Right, I mean he's he's the future of the backcourt, and that's the that's the bottom line there. And, and Kevin Pritchard was talking glowingly about Mather. I'm just saying he's probably your best trade asset as you're looking to move. That's Correct, he's their he he would be their most desirable piece or Halliburton. And I don't you know those that's their cornerstone though. I yeah. know what you're saying. I got jolted though. <laughs> no, I feel you. Like Miles Turner, like yeah, we love Miles Turner. He's had a great year last year. He's probably the third best player on this team moving forward right now. But what team is trading for a center that's only got two years left on his contract to move back four spots in the draft? I mean, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, even though I do think Portland could use a massive upgrade at center. I just don't think that someone like Miles is really going to move the needle to get you four picks up in this draft, knowing the tiers. 
Uh, okay, Alex, last one for me. And again, setting the pace, Alex Golden. That's the podcast. Alex Golden with us here on the Payless Slickers Hotline. The two names that have kind of caught my eye the most in that seven range is Jairus Walker out of Houston and Taylor Hendricks out of Central Florida. Um, you can go multiple ways with that, either on those two guys or is there another name that I should be talking about a little bit more at seven? I think these two names probably fit the Pacers the most right now in terms of what they need. They're both more likely power forwards uh, that can maybe guard three and two, I think. I think both could play small ball five. I think uh, Taylor Hendricks is probably a little bit uh, light for that. I I think that Jairus Walker would be a better option playing a little bit small ball five. I think both guys make a lot of sense for the Pacers. And another name I'm looking at here because he's kind of been falling around like the six to eight range is Asar Thompson. I feel like that's more of your high upside swing. I know so many people and so many fans are so turned off by uh, the Thompson twins because they played in the OTE, but I do believe in his potential. And from every person I've talked to that, that covers the draft, they just talk about the Thompson twins and their work ethic and their desire to get better. He was the MVP of the OTE. He's a better scorer than his brother. He's got playmaking ability. I feel like the upside there with Asar Thompson is, is much higher than both Hendricks and Walker. But I do believe that uh, if you're looking at a team that the Pacers that want to probably compete next season, the best that I think to try to get to the playoffs next year is Jarris Walker. He's, he's ready now. I think he's got a pretty high floor. I uh, don't know how high his ceiling is, but I think he can come in right away and be that starter next to Miles, where I think if you drafted Taylor Hendricks, I don't know if he'd be ready to start right away, but I do think that his potential is a little bit higher um, in a couple of years than Jarris Walker. At Alex Golden NBA on Twitter. Great draft coverage, uh, certainly over the next month or so, as the Pacers have a lot of, in Kevin Pritchard's words, optionality coming up here this offseason. Alex, great stuff, man. Thanks for hopping on with us. Absolutely, guys. I appreciate it. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. 9 o'clock hour underway, and that means an hour and 15 minutes from now, engines will roar to life at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. At least one of them will. R.C. Enerson, a rookie, of course, for Able Motorsports. I say rookie. He, If the name sounds familiar to you, it's because he attempted last year to qualify for the 500. He was bumped. So as a result of that, he is still technically a rookie. He will have to undergo the rookie orientation at 10-15, And then at 12 o'clock, everything gets underway, all cars out on the track. That includes our next guest, who will be piloting the number six Arrow McLaren machine. Felix Rosenquist joins us on the program. And Felix, we'll begin with this. I I was curious about this yesterday for those that are unfamiliar, and it looks spectacular today. But what do you guys do during a rain delay? Like yesterday, you're out there, it's 55 degrees. There's no more depressing place on earth when it rains. So how did you kill the time yesterday? Oh, dude, it's uh, so actually we spent. I spent some time uh, on Chat GPT. Do you know what that is? It's like an AI <laughs> robot. You can ask anything. What but were you asking? Mexico's most uh, famous uh, celebrity, 
and he didn't say Pato Award. <laughs> so, so what we're saying is, it's artificial and intelligent, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yes. Did you ask yeah. uh, who, who Sweden's biggest celebrity is? I already know, so I, I didn't. Even, I didn't even have to ask it. And the answer to that is who? Marcus Erickson. <laughs> well played. Well played. Um, so Felix Rosenquist joins us. L- let's begin with this, and it's it's always good to talk to you, man. We appreciate the time. Uh, what's the game plan for today? You know, a lot of people. Kevin was asking earlier, does this prioritize today, or in reality, do you guys have a pretty good idea of what and where your cars are? I mean, compared to last year, the cars are fairly similar. You know, there's some aero bits that are different, so I think that's the main thing. We want to get some good aero runs in, just try uh, clean air runs, basically. Uh, so I think that will probably be our morning here, uh, get, get our heads a little bit back in that game and then uh, but i think there will be traffic running going probably you know around four or five today um some some big groups forming but yeah you know we, we have quite a lot of running i'm, I'm sure it's going to be maybe one or two rain delays at some point but uh we, we feel like we have a pretty good idea uh and it's the same for everyone right so not really not freaking out yet but i guess, I guess uh I guess if there'll be rain around qualifying time, that would be a bit more stressful because, like, getting your your qualifying car set up is a bit more important. You know, you you don't, you don't want to make any mistakes on 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 that car. And going into Fast Friday, you want to make sure you know every run is is solid and clean. So uh, yeah, so far we're we're very calm and we're looking forward to get back out there. You know, I had two days rained out now, so uh, it's about time to do some laps. Felix, um, yeah, I feel like in a way you, you you're, you're kind of lurking, like entering this 500. You had a great qualifying you know, run last year in the first three rows. You finished fourth. You've got three straight top tens coming into this year's 500. In a way, do you kind of feel like you know, maybe a little bit under the radar, but like there's a lot of momentum based off last year's success here at the 500 and what you've done here over the last couple of races. Yeah, I would say so. You know, it's funny in IndyCar now because even when you finish, you know, fifth or sixth, which is really difficult, you know, you don't really, you know, people mainly care about who wins the race. And as you say, you're kind of like lurking under the radar and you're just waiting for the opportunity to to get get a big one. So uh, for, for sure, I feel, I feel like we have good momentum on the sixth car. You know, the whole Aaron McLaren team has good momentum in general. I feel like we're We've been one of the teams that, you know, maybe we haven't been the absolute quickest, but we've been there in about every race. And and that's kind of the key in IndyCar right now. You don't want to have any weak uh, weekends, basically. And, and I feel like we're just knocking everywhere right now. So so that's awesome. And, and, and going into in, in May with that feeling is even more exciting. And as I say, I had a really solid run here last year when we, you know, leading the race with not many laps to go so uh uh yeah I feel, I feel like we have every reason to be to be excited right now i thought you were going to win last year honestly like late in the race felix i can't remember how late it was they all kind of run together to me after a while but i remember you were you were leading late and i can't remember what it was did you have to make maybe a fuel stop or you were a little off strategy but i, I i'm just curious of this from a driving perspective is it dangerous for you late in the race to start getting caught up in what might be unfolding for you? I mean, I know you've got to just take it lap by lap, 
but you're leading the Indy 500 late and you're looking at fuel and you're figuring, you know, you're wondering what's going to go on. How do you keep your focus? I mean, yeah, it, it, that, that's true. You, you don't really want to start thinking about <laughs> winning the race too, too early. And, and what, what you mentioned there, that was actually 2021 where we were off strategy and kind of just hoping for a yellow. Okay. Uh, didn't and you, work and out, you had to pit late, right? Yes, yeah. correct. But then uh, last year we were actually leading the race outright with the, you know, after the last pit sequence, uh, you know, right where Dixon had his penalty and, uh, and then Marcus was just catching us too quickly and, and we couldn't keep him behind us. And then Pato came kind of with him at the same time. Um, but it, it was cool to kind of, you know, just show everyone that we were, you know, after that last pit stop, we were right up there leading the race on a green flag race. So uh, that that just shows what we can do. And 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 even that time, as you said, like you you start thinking a little about about winning the race, but you, then you look how many laps you have to go. Like, oh, it's going to be, it's not going to be a cruise to the finish. You know, it, it never is at the five hundred. You know, I think maybe only Alex ex- has experienced that to actually work out for a win. Um, but yeah, you know, you never know how it's going to play out. You just have to be, you know, try to keep within the top five. That's always what I said around here. You know, if you can be top five in the final stint, you know, any, anything can happen. So which is more nerve-wracking, leading the race late like you did two years ago, knowing that you're going to need some cautions and some help, but you've got a good car, or leading the race late like you did a year ago, but knowing that you're kind of slipping backwards and that there are better cars behind you that you've got to hold off. I think last year was more nerve wracking because you, you know, you have the fuel, you know that you can push and you just, it, it just hurts when you see the cars getting bigger in your mirror every lap. And, uh, man, it, but I think that's a better way. It's still like you, you, you know that you're in the mix for real and you know, that. Uh, no matter if you know yellows or not, like you're, you're going to be up there fighting till the end. That that's a cool feeling, you know. The, the first time you 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 have the opportunity to win the 500 like that, I, I feel like it's, it's something just changes in, in you, and you 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 know it's, it's it's a goal just to be in that position, and you know you're not going to be in that position every year. You know, there's so many competitive cars, and and you, you yeah, it's a, it's a rare opportunity. Felix Rosenquist is our guest. He's on the Payless Sugars Hotline. He, of course, drives the number six Aero McLaren machine. You can meet Felix Rosenquist coming up a week from Thursday from 4.30 until 6.30 p.m. at the Crawfordsville Road Kroger. That's the Speedway Kroger. He's going to be there. We had a lot of fun with that last year. Bapata Award, all part of Mission Foods that is putting that together. So, again, we'll get you more of that information as we get closer to it. But mark your calendar for a week from Thursday. Felix, in talking about Pata Award, let me give you the outsider perspective, and then I want you to tell me how accurate this perspective is, okay? Okay. And the outside perspective of your team, and in particular you and Pata Award, is that Pata Award is this excitable, very talented young driver. Um, I mean, obviously, like yourself, you have come in with massive accolades and winning a lot of races, over 30 races in different series coming into IndyCar. And you got with the team, and there was this outside perspective that perhaps Felix, Felix Rosenquist's ride was going to be available from Aero McLaren, and that you were going to have to go somewhere else. But that Pata Award and the unique, because oftentimes teammates are competitors against one another, and there was this unique chemistry between you and Pata Award from both the friendship inside and outside the paddock that kind of forced Aero McLaren 
to give it another run and it is paying off because you are running up front along with Pato, but that your friendship with him was working for the team and that's what has brought cohesiveness that also has brought in Alexander Rossi. Your thoughts on just that outsider perspective, is there any accuracy to any of that? Well, that's a good analysis and I'm, I'm not sure, you know, honestly, even if I'm in the middle of it, I, I don't know all the, you know, details that make these decisions happen and I think probably the biggest one was just performance. Uh <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I think it means a lot for the team when, when the drivers get along and it, it's kind of crucial for a team. If you want to win championships and win races, it's going to be a lot easier doing that if the teammates get along and because and, that's going to mean that you, you can help each other you know, develop the car. You're not going to hide stuff from each other. And, you, you know, we're still very competitive against each other, as you could hear in the beginning of this call. <laughs> uh, but, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it has some, something to do with it and maybe not. But I, I think no matter what, you know, we, we're, we're having a good thing going. And, and you know, we're, we're like brothers at this, <laughs> at this point. And it, it certainly helps. And having Alex in the team is also really awesome. And, you know, I, I feel like he... He's really come out of his shell coming into our team as well. And, and, you know, before it was me and Pato and I was the three of us. And we we hang a lot. We hang out a lot, you know, both on the track and outside of track. And it's just great where you can have that going, which also I think is kind of rare. Yeah, Alex being Alexander Rossi, for those that are unfamiliar, who left Andretti Autosport last year, joined the team this year. Uh, and then you also add in Tony Kanan, who brings the veteran presence. Um, if you could, Felix Rosenquist, elaborate for us a little more on what both Alexander Rossi and then in this month of May situation, Tony Kanan bring to you. Well, it's funny because I feel like me and Alex are probably more similar personality-wise. And then Tony and Pato are a bit more similar, even if they have the biggest age gaps. You know, I, I can see some similarities in, in, in Pato and Tony. They're, they're very high energy, uh, very, you know, outspoken, very forward. And, and me and Alex are a bit more reserved and kind of just focusing more on driving and, and not, not maybe as present in, you know, media, fans and stuff like that. So it, it, it's kind of interesting to see how, like, four people with and two of them have very similar personalities uh but it's it's awesome to have both alex and tony on on the team you know they they both won the 500 and, and that kind of speaks for itself and to, to get that experience on board from one year to the other from having zero 500 winners uh, but close close 500 winners and, and then having all of a sudden two on board and having uh, one more car as well that that's just huge for the team and you, you just feel the the confidence in the team after that and, and just li- listening to you know alex and especially tony you know, having so many years under his belt here it's just you know you always learn something when when he's out and when he when he starts talking you definitely listen up so it, it's it's pretty cool man and felix rosenquist is with us here on the payless liquors hotline fourth in the 500 last year coming off three top tens headed into today's i guess kind of first official day uh, on the track well, it looks to be a gorgeous day out there felix if you don't mind um kind of indulge me here for 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 a second and um you can't pick one of your teammates with this okay uh 10 laps to go in the race you've got two cars to pass you can't pick yourself you can't pick a teammate who would you want behind the wheel um you mean like who do i want to fight 
for the win with. Yeah, who do you think would be like the most talented driver in that situation? You know, you're a car owner, whatever. You're in third place. You need to pass two cars. Who would you want behind the wheel? Uh, um, I'd probably say Dixon, man. Uh, I feel like he's just been knocking on the door here every year, and especially last year. And I've, I, I was right there with him when he had that you know penalty last year and i really felt for him and i i feel like he's he's a he's a, he's a worthy winner here and he definitely deserves more wins than he, he's had so I, i'll probably if i if i would pick a driver i'll put my money on him and then the flip side of that would you go with him if you needed someone to maybe hold off two cars over the final 10 laps You mean like to defend, basically? Yeah, basically to defend. I guess mm. kind of snake it up, if you will, like we've seen. Oh, dude, I don't think I need Kevin Magnuson back. <laughs> <laughs> he's like the master defender. Uh, and he's been in like, like a number of different kinds like of cars, which probably helps. I feel like maybe Santino can be a good defender. Ooh, really? Interesting. Ferrucci, yeah. okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Hey, Felix, yeah. you, Felix Rosenquist is our guest again a week from Thursday, 4.30 until 6.30. He'll be at the Speedway Kroger on Crawfordsville Road along with Mission Foods. Um, and Pato Award will be there as well. Uh, Felix, do you still live? I know at one time you were living in Indy virtually year-round. Are you still living here year-round? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I'm in Carmel these days and uh, actually just got a house there. It's pretty exciting. Uh, it was supposed to be done in February, but it, it got done like two weeks ago. So it's a busy month of May in in, in all regards, right? Now. <laughs> what? Let me ask you this: Is there a part of, and in any way, shape, or form, I'm fascinated by people who grow up in another country, speak another language, have another culture, and then come to Indianapolis. I mean, this is not New York, right? But. Yeah. Is there any part of Indianapolis in any way, shape, or form that reminds you of home? If is there any one thing that makes you feel good inside because it just kind of reminds you of where it is that you come from? Oh, good question. Um, not man, it's so different. It's well, like where I'm from is very flat as well. So I, I guess that's just coming. It's already like home when <laughs> considering that. Uh, there's some lakes, man, like Lake Monroe. It kind of reminds you of home a little bit. Like there's a lot of lakes where I grew up in Sweden. Uh, so when you're out on the water, it kind of reminds you a little bit. But uh, man, it's it's so different that it, it, it's becoming a different home. But it's, it's never the same, I guess. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you avoid getting homesick i know you're an adult you're a grown man right but still that's i mean it's just such a different world away there have to be times where you get up in the morning and just think you know i i really would just like to to be home right now <laughs> dude actually actually not for me because I, I mean I've, I've always been traveling since i was you know go-karts when i was like 12 years old i've always been flying around everywhere and actually when i came over here it, it became more of a permanent location than i had for you know the past 15 years so actually it's the opposite i kind of enjoy to just be here and kind of calling it home uh instead of just looping around the world uh, like i did before i came to indycar so yeah it, it, it's actually a more calm lifestyle and and it, it's in the in the past 20 years it's actually the place where i feel 
yeah, more more permanently connected to. It's kind of weird to say that, but it's actually true. Felix, last one for me. I absolutely love, love the paint schemes for Aero McLaren here in the 500. Correct me if I'm wrong here. You've got a little bit more of the white aspect to it with the orange trim. Is that right? Correct. I have the good-looking one, the best-looking one. They all all look sick, man. They all look really, really good. They look awesome. We're celebrating McLaren's, uh, you know, they've the only team in the world who's done a triple crown, which means you won the Monaco GP, the Le Mans, and the Indy 500. So we're basically racing those actual liveries that were won. Uh, so my one is the Monaco 84 with Alan Prost, and, and it just looks wow. amazing, man. It's uh, it's such a cool retro livery, and I'm, I'm super proud to have it. And the car just looks it just looks like speed, even even standing in the garage. <laughs> I just think running for McLaren in general, it is such a historic team worldwide, to your point, that, that being able to say that you're a driver for McLaren would be, I mean, that would be pretty cool. That would be right on the top of my resume. I'm going to give you a trivia question before we let you go, Felix. We'll see if you get it correct. You ready? Okay, let's go. If, if you get this right, by the way, I, I, I can't even Come begin on, to Felix. tell you how impressed I'll be. Uh, Kevin, you can join in and help if you'd like. Oh, boy. Felix, I'm going to give you the name of a few drivers in Indy 500 history. Fred Frame, yeah. Bill Cummings, Mario Andretti, Al Unser, Bobby Rahal, and Dario Franchitti. Can you guess what those drivers have in common where you have an opportunity to put your name in the list with those drivers? And I, I mention them to you as a token of good luck. Hmm. They all—they've all won the 500. Uh, Boy, he's right there during a yellow flag. Ooh, man, you were close. They all won in like their fifth start or whatever number start he's. Kevin about to make. Bowen with the win. Felix, you will be starting your fifth <laughs> Indianapolis 500 should you qualify, and those men uh, all won in their first one in their fifth start. So you would join. Oh, pretty good company um last one and, and i'm really proud of myself a sign of my maturation felix oh, i've not mentioned swedish fish that's the first time i've ever interviewed you and we're not going to go there but your favorite abba song oh dancing queen without question <laughs> without question it's Come gonna on. be stuck in my head the rest he of the day went now. with the generic one on that <laughs> how about the winner takes it all it should be the winner takes it all right no nah, it's too 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 uh too standard we have to go with something different <laughs> all right i love enough. it felix good luck today man good luck the next all couple right. of weeks we'll be rooting for you thank you very much guys whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. All right, coming up this weekend, the sporting calendar has got a couple of events that certainly draw some attention and maybe not our mainstream sports. Obviously, we'll have calls here locally. We'll have the conference finals and the NBA, but you've got the Preakness, uh, which we'll chat about on Friday, and you've got the second major of the year 
in professional golf, and that will be the PGA Championship from Rochester, New York, Oak Hill Golf Course. Our next guest joins us, Will Haskett. Sean McKeel, Indiana grad, by the way, won a previous PGA Championship at Oak Hill, and he is live from Rochester. Will, you got a little feature group action this week? Yeah, it's freezing here, boys. Uh, but yeah, um, there's a lot of feature groups. I'll be on one of them starting tomorrow. I've got afternoon duty this week. So I start with Tommy Fleetwood, Cameron Young, and Hideki Matsuyama tomorrow. And then I transition to Scotty Scheffler, Brooks Kepka, Gary Woodland on Friday. Now, Tommy Fleetwood was on Rumors, I think, right? And then left and then came back to the band? I'm not 100% positive on that. It's Mick's younger brother, right? That's right. That's right. right. You've got some pretty good guys in those two groups, by the way. I mean, those are some straight, long hitters that I think could be up there come Sunday. Uh, But, I mean, two of the – I would say my two picks this week, guys I just sort of liked when I was thinking about this week and then – arriving at the golf course were Kepka and Cameron Young. So, yeah, when I got the assignment, I was kind of excited because I think I've been telling a lot of people that those are two that I have my eye on this week just in terms of what this golf course demands. Um, it's a beautiful piece of property. If anybody remembers it from the PGA Championship 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it looks completely different. Andrew Green came in and did a full restoration to return it to how Donald Ross designed it in the 1920s. Um, there are corners on the edges of these greens. They're square again. It's it's a really, really cool piece of property, but it's super hard. And I think for any of us, you know, who've grown up in the Midwest, when they moved the PGA Championship back to May, a lot of people were concerned about weather, and rightfully so. It's 30-something degrees outside right now, and I don't really think we're going to start on time tomorrow because of frost. But like we know what grass can do in May in the Midwest, and it is as lush, green, thick, and nasty as you could want to get it right now. So, Will, my novice golf question that I ask you when we have you in these circumstances a lot is, this particular course and the way that it's played favors which golfer? And give me a mainline golfer that this particular course may give them some fits because it's not necessarily conducive to their style. Yeah, so I think it's a first-shot golf course this week. Uh, some of the players I talked to yesterday sort of think of it that way, and by that I mean those who can really drive the ball long and straight have an advantage. Uh, some people have sort of backed that off a little bit, depending on who you talk to and certain players, because it's also super firm out here. You hit a ball in the fairway, and it runs 20, 30, 40 yards. But, again, I followed some guys yesterday that really moved the ball and just some of the bunkers that they can carry and take on and the advantage it gives them in some of the holes. I still think it plays into you know, one of those elite, you know, long hitters of the golf ball this week. And so the, the, the counter to that in terms of guys that I wouldn't expect to have as big of an advantage, like sort of household name standpoint, and he's actually gotten longer, but he's also battling a wrist injury. Is I don't think it's a great golf course for a Jordan Spieth. You know, I don't like golf courses where you have to bludgeon it off the tee for a guy like Jordan. You know, Cameron Smith has finally shown something on live, if that means anything to you. So the guy that was kind of the darling of major championships last year, I don't really think that golf courses that are so big on driving the ball fits a guy like him. So those would be two guys that I would say that it doesn't really necessarily fit them this week. Um, but again, like, you know, guys can have a great driving week. Guys can have an unbelievable putting week. And they can buck those trends, but you know that's just kind of how I view it. 
Okay, Will Haskett's with us here. You're going to hear him on featured coverage here, the PGA Championship, coming up the next couple of days out at Oak Hill. Um, you mentioned some of the storylines there. I mean, the Jordan Spieth wrist injury. You know, Rory uh, took that leave of, leave of absence a couple weeks ago. You know, John Rahm, can he back up what he did at the Masters and potentially win the first two legs of the Grand Slam? Obviously, you have Liv. Uh, what other storylines kind of intrigue you? Wow. I mean, you hit on a lot of them. I mean, I think right now we're in a place where it's this, you know, Rahm and Scheffler back and forth. I mean, Scotty Scheffler's finished in the top 12 and 12 consecutive tournaments. I mean, he's on an absolute sort of consistency tear, and I think this is also a good fit for him. I mean, those are, you know, really kind of the one-two, and then is anybody else? I think it would be, is anybody else, and I guess that includes now Rory because it's been such an awkward sort of month for Rory, is, is anybody going to sort of emerge as a threat to the – clear-cut top two players in the game. And I actually think that there's a little bit of a gap between John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler, as weird as that sounds, and as good as Scotty Scheffler's numbers have been. I mean, I think John Rahm's the best player in the world, and it's really not even debatable. But is there going to be somebody, you know, we always get in golf way too big in the big three. You know, every year there's a new big three. We never really establish that there are guys that can maintain consistency for such a long period of time. But who's going to be the guy going into the U.S. Open and maybe it's a guy who wins this tournament who's like, okay, is he going to be on the same pedestal in terms of consistency as we've seen from John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler? So I'm interested to see who wins this week and sort of puts their hat in that ring or in that race of being the guy that challenges those guys maybe at the end of the year to being the top player in the sport. Well, we go back to the Masters, and obviously Brooks Koepka fell apart on Sunday, but you know him, Phil Mickelson, certainly that was a pretty amazing performance by him given how he's played on Liv. Patrick Reed had a nice showing there. I mean, those three guys all finished in the top five from Liv. Granted, they have a lot of familiarity with Augusta National. Oak Hill, you know, they're certainly not playing, I think, very comparable golf courses on the Liv Tour that uh, they will see this week. Uh, at Oak Hill. So do you view this as maybe a, more of a, I don't know, a better evaluation for these guys on live or how do you kind of view that group of golfers this week? You know, it's so funny, Kevin, because I think now for those of us that are in it every single week, I personally am tired of who who's playing well. Does it matter? What does live sort of do? And I look at the guys that have always sort of treated it that way. So whether it's Dustin Johnson or Brooks Kepka, I think two guys that are just like, you know, they were very open and honest as to why they made their decision. They didn't burn any bridges out the door. You know, they are, they're revving their bodies and their minds up to be competitive in these types of events. Like Kepka was at the Masters, where by the way, he said, I think this, I think it's out today, but his podcast with pardon my take and barstool. I mean, he called it, he said he choked. Like, I mean, he, he owned what he, what that Sunday was like for him at the Masters. Um, how we measure these guys is just, I don't really know if it matters anymore. I think we live now in this place, pardon the pun, of two separate tours, and we're going to be here for a while, and we're going to have guys that play well in majors and guys that don't play well in majors. And I I don't know. I I don't think we're going to have as many people measuring it as we did in April at the Masters because as we get more and more saturated in this reality, it just doesn't really matter. So I expect there to be some guys, because they're world-class players, I expect many of them to play really well. You know, Taylor Gooch has been playing really, really good golf on Live, and he's you know made a a point of pointing out the fact that he doesn't think he's getting respect from the golf community. So this is a good week for him maybe to step up. So maybe that's one of them where it's like, okay, well, this guy, let's put your money where your mouth is if you really think that you're playing the best golf and you deserve to be getting into tournaments like the U.S. Open 
because of your play out there than show it, showcase it this week. You know, maybe that's one of those situations, but I expect to have a leaderboard when it's all said and done of guys from both tours. And hopefully it's about the tournament, not necessarily about, oh, look at how well they're playing. Like, you know, they're great golfers. There should be guys that play well that are coming off a live. Will, Will, do you watch Ted Lasso? I do, and I, um, I'm about two or three episodes behind. Okay. So if you want to spoil it for me, you can, because if the audience knows, I spoiled a succession episode when I was hosting the midday show a couple of weeks ago that the fellas still have not let me live down. So if you want to ruin the last couple of weeks for me, you can, because that would only be fair and karma coming back full circle. Won't do it. I won't do it, because, um, you know, I have a soul. But uh, let me say this in the last minute here. Uh, in Ted Lasso, one of the famous lines in it is, as an athlete, you got to be a goldfish. And that means don't have a, a memory. If something goes wrong, you just keep moving on. You don't look back. That was what Tiger Woods' strength was as a golfer. He was so mentally focused and sharp. In your opinion and observation, give me the guy that has inherited the mantle from Tiger Woods as the most mentally sharp. Uh, we have one minute left. Um, the guy that's a goldfish and just is totally locked in. I think John Rahm right now is in such a perfect headspace in all of the balance that he has in his life and is thoughtful and thought-provoking in the things that he says. I think he's probably the one that fits that criteria the most. Although Scotty Scheffler gave an amazing answer yesterday about applying Sunday pressure on a Thursday and being excited and, and operating in a positive mindset. So if you wanted to go read that transcript, it's really good. But I would say John Rahm is the answer to that question. Uh, Will, just to remind everybody, uh, ESPN Plus, is that right, Feature Groups? ESPN Plus, I think we've got four featured groups and featured holes. I'll be on feature group one from tomorrow through Sunday. Awesome. Uh, great stuff, Will. Thank you. Enjoy Oak Hill. It looks absolutely awesome and hope it comes off that way on uh, TV. See you guys. Enjoy quals.